specifically verses 1 through 12. Um, there's just so much in this chapter, I, I couldn't do it justice on one, in one sermon. In fact, there's actually so much, I can't give everything justice with one sermon already, um, unless you want to be here for a couple hours. So, grab your Bibles and we'll start in verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and how to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress his brother, or that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray again. Lord, thank you for your word. It is your word. We are hearing from you this morning through your word. Father, help me to preach by the power of your spirit. Soften our hearts. We are weak, but you are sufficient. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, obviously we are working through 1 Thessalonians. And it's pretty common in Paul's letters that there is a strong doctrine at the beginning. The first couple chapters, um, he's expounding some doctrine. Uh, although 1 Thess- Thessalonians isn't super doctrine heavy in the sense of like in Ephesians where it starts, uh, you know, you are predestined before the foundation of the world and it gets pretty deep pretty quick. Uh, so there's still plenty of doctrine in this. Um, but there's always a transition towards the later part of the book. And chapter 4 is where we reach that point. And so the first thing I would like for you to notice in verse 1 is when Paul says, finally. So he says, finally, that's kind of uh, in our mind we think, okay, there's a transition here. So kind of like when you, when you read the word therefore, you know, there's an application he's going to draw. Finally, which means he's drawing to a next part of the letter. Now, it could be a little bit deceiving because it says finally, and you read, and there's still two more chapters left. So Paul isn't saying finally a couple more things, and then he's going to hang up the phone <laughs> or sign off. So it's not saying he's finished. He's saying transition to some more practical part, the more practical part of his letter, his commands. So we keep that in mind here. So he obviously has still plenty to say. And so what comes next isn't just some quick things. So we should not write this off. It is very important to listen to what he has to say. Uh, But with this transition to the more practical part, Also to keep in mind, we can't divorce this part from what came before, the first three chapters. Uh, Just a reminder that even though the chapters and the verses are helpful when we're reading and we want to follow a Bible reading plan or we want to look something up, uh, we have chapters and verses. You know, hey, turn to chapter 37, verse 2. You know, we can flip there. But the original scripture uh, didn't have that. So, when someone is reading this letter, they're not thinking, okay, we've now reached chapter three, and now we've reached chapter four. It's the whole letter combined. They would have received it all in one chunk. So we can't divorce that. So that might be a little bit disservice to us sometimes because we kind of section things off where the original readers would not have done that. They would have just heard what happened in chapter three. And so now they're on to chapter four for us. So let's keep keeping that in mind. In fact, let's go ahead and flip back to chapter one to help refresh us. 
Chapter 1 at the end, end of verse 9 says, Paul is saying, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So even though we're in the more practical part of the letter, before we even got here, Paul has told the Thessalonians the truth of the gospel, what Jesus has done. We cannot forget that. So basically he stated this reality in verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1, is the Thessalonian Christians have turned from their idols to God and now serve the true God. And they're waiting for the return of Christ, which is Jesus, that God raised from the dead who delivered his people from their sin, from the wrath to come, which everyone will be under the wrath of God who is outside of Christ. This is what Paul has, has reminded the Thessalonians there in chapter 1. So when we read the practical do's and the commands of Scripture, we must remember the grace of God first. That comes first. And we'll touch this more in a little bit to see how important this is. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the next couple of verses. Verses 1 and 2. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So the Thessalonians have already received from Paul instructions on how they ought to walk to please the Lord. He reminds them that these instructions were given in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So in effect, this is saying that these instructions were as, as if they came from Jesus himself. They have the exact same authority. And I think it's been mentioned before when we went through Galatians about how uh, there's some false teaching out there where they want to divorce Paul's teaching from Jesus' teaching. When Paul teaches, it is as if Jesus himself has spoken. It's the same authority because he's speaking for Christ. So even today, that's, that's pretty popular where they say, well, Jesus said this and Paul said this and they're contradicting each other or Paul is somehow down here and Jesus is up here as far as in written scripture. That's not the case. Twice, if you look in the verse, it says, in the Lord Jesus. And in verse two, through the Lord Jesus. That's pretty bold to say that if he's not speaking for Jesus, if it's not the same authority. So, some of you may have red-letter Bibles, and I'm not against them. That's not what I want to preach against, is red-letter Bibles. However, I think there is a mistake that some of us may make, is that we think that the red letters carry more authority than the black letters, and that's not true. The black letters are just as important as the red letters. So, there might be... um, some miscommunication when we think, okay, here are the red letters, let's really focus on those and maybe not focus as much on the black. When Paul is speaking, he's basically saying, hey, take my words as if they're red. Although that wasn't a thing back then, but for help today. So this is as if Jesus is speaking. I speak for Jesus, Paul says. Receive my words as Jesus is speaking. And what did he say? He said, you receive from me how you ought to walk to please the Lord. And what does this mean? It's really simple. For the Thessalonians and for us today, what does this mean? It is every Christian's duty to walk in a way that pleases the Lord. This isn't groundbreaking. This isn't groundbreaking things here, stuff. But we need the reminder. But what does Paul say further? He says, we are to do this, what? Not just walk in a way we ought to please the Lord, but do this more and more to do this more and more. So the Christian life doesn't just start and stop at conversion. And I think we all know this. Conversion meaning God bringing someone from death to life. So from conversion, from God saving us, that is the point from where, from where now we are bound to obedience to, to the Lord. Not for salvation, but for worship and to show our love to him. Because the truth is we are either a slave 
to, the, to our sin and to the flesh or to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ? There is no middle ground. Spiritually, there is no middle ground. As question one of the Heidelberg Catechism says, and this is just summarizing a part of it, it says, Jesus Christ has freed me from the power of the devil. And on a little further it says, and by his Holy Spirit makes me sincerely willing and ready from now on to live for him. Sincerely willing and ready from now on to live for him. So obedience should be the joy of the Christian. But it's not aimless, wandering obedience. Our obedience is directly tied to what? What is our obedience tied to? Our obedience, our obedience is tied to the will of God. The will of God. And so what is the will of God? So here is where I'd like to spend the bulk of our remaining time. Now the will of God, that's always a, a fun, interesting topic to talk about. So many people seems like they're drowning. Oh, Lord, what is your will in this? I don't know. What is your will? What is your will? And maybe they're looking for signs for the Lord for something, which I would argue isn't wise to do because he's given us direction. So we're wondering maybe, well, who should I marry? Or what school should I go to? Should I quit my job? Should I approach this person to talk about this? Lord, what's your will? Now, it's not wrong to pray and ask, ask these things, but there are very specific things in Scripture that God has said, this is my will. Do this, and, you will be, and be faithful in obeying this. And other things will start to line up. So what school do you want to go to? Who should I marry? You know, there's not a verse you can open up and be like, well, it says to marry Janice. I did not marry Lindsay, actually, not Janice. But <laughs> and there was no verse for that, but I know it was the Lord's will because it happened. However, there are things that we can know. God says to not be unequally yoked. So a Christian man should be looking for a Christian woman. We know that's part of the Lord's will. And so things like that is what do we know is pleasing to the Lord? Walk in that way. But here are some very specific things that we know is absolutely the will of God. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Someone asks you, hey, what's the will of God? You can answer, your sanctification. Now, there's obviously more here in the whole Bible about what the will of, of God is. And this isn't exhaustive, but here is a very important part of what God's will for your life is. Our sanctification, your sanctification, my sanctification. And before we get into the how of sanctification, here's a quick de definition of what sanctification is. Sanctification is the process by which God's Holy Spirit transforms believers' thoughts, motives, and behavior to conform to the holiness of Christ himself. Let me read that again. Sanctification is the process by which God's Holy Spirit transforms believers' thoughts, motives, and behavior to conform to the holiness of Christ himself. And as one commentator put it, sanctification is at once a gift and a demand. It is a gift in that believers are objectively holy in Christ. And it is a demand and that it is the will of God that they should become subjectively transformed into Christ-likeness. So there's that reality, is in Scripture, we are called both sanctified and to be sanctified. We are holy in Christ, positionally, but practically God calls us to walk a holy life. These two things are true. So God calls us sanctified. We are holy in Christ, yet practically we have growing to do. And before we go on, I have to be abundantly clear is that our sanctification is not and cannot be divorced from what God has already done for the Christian. We start in, we start from grace. The free grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ alone. We are justified first. We are justified first. You cannot miss this. 
We don't work for a position of righteousness. We work from a position of righteousness. So Christ has saved us. We are justified. That is the reality. But our sanctification is what happens after that. So if we are working to gain righteousness, to gain something from the Lord, we've totally misunderstood what sanctification is. We work from the, the position of Christ's righteousness. And we can't understand how to walk as a Christian if we get this mixed up. And we can't walk in a way that pleases God if we think our sanctification somehow earns us righteousness. We start with righteousness. And sanctification is our growing in holiness, practically. It's all by sheer grace. So with that being said, here are a couple things. Also, sanctification is not. I'm sure you've heard this phrase before. Let go and let God. Let go and let God. It's not that. Sanctification is not that. Now, I'm not opposed when someone says that in the sense of we need to let God take care of this. That's okay. If that's what you mean by that, that's okay. However, there is a movement out there that says let go and let God, meaning our sanctification is I'm just going to sit back I'm going to let God work it all out. That's not what Scripture teaches for our sanctification. It is clear from Scripture that we are to strive, to strive in becoming more practically holy. Even look at the verbs in this text we'll look at. You don't, um, we're not going to read the verses quite yet, but here are a couple verbs. It's abstain, to know, control, transgress and wrong, to resist against that. So we, here we see he's talking about sanctification. It's very active. We're not sitting back on our, on our big lazy boy saying, well, let go and let God. Sounds easy, but that's not what God has said to do. So in Eric's sermon last Sunday, at the theater, he said, God's sovereignty is not an excuse to not swing the sword. God's sovereignty is not an excuse to not swing the sword. So yes, God is in control. God is in charge of our salvation and sanctification. But he has also told us how to go about doing our sanctification. He has given us the means. So we don't just let go. Quite the opposite. We grab onto the plow and we strive forward. Here's the other thing sanctification is not. Sanctification is not becoming perfect. Sanctification is not perfection. There is a movement out there where they think you can, your sanctification can be complete on this side of heaven. That is not true. That is not true. It will only be complete when Christ returns or you die, whichever one comes first. But until that, time we are striving so Paul said they were doing what he instructed them but he said what as I said earlier to do it more and more this is the reality for the Christian today still so with these clarifications let's look about some of the specifics about how our sanctification comes about and this list as I said isn't exhaustive but here are some critical ways we are to strive after our sanctification, how we are to strive. Verses 3 through 6, starting in the middle of verse 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So what's the first thing in that list? What's the first thing in that list? Abstain from sexual immorality. To abstain from sexual immorality. And some background that might help us out is that the Thessalonian Christians were living in a Greek in a pagan culture where sexual immorality was rampant. And I don't think I have to explain too much to you because I think America is a pretty good re representation of that. In fact, we might be worse. So they were living in that culture. And many 
of the Thessalonian Christians came from that background. They grew up practicing, worshiping pagan gods, which many of the practices involved very um, sexual acts. And so that's what they were used to. They're used to giving in to the flesh. They were used to um, being indifferent to things, not resisting their desires. And so when they became Christians, it's not like the temptation goes away. And I think you all know that. We're, we're all battling temptations every day. So if you're a Christian and you've struggled with a certain sin, um, well, before you're a Christian, you probably just gave into it all the time. But as a Christian comes, it's like, well, I'm now perfect. I don't have to worry about it. We all know that's not true. So the same sins that we were prone to before we were Christian are the same sins that we now are prone to after. There's more temptation there. Or we may be more apt to, to fall into that sin. So that's what these Thessalonian Christians were, were dealing with. So the flesh was indulged. And so to now resist was like, this is a challenge. This is a challenge. It's a real struggle. So their bodies and our bodies no longer, no longer should be used for personal gain, giving in to the flesh. But what? But to be conformed to the ethical standard of Jesus. To the ethical standard of Jesus. Now when I say ethics or morality behind the pulpit, some of us may freak out and think, oh boy, if this is just a moralistic sermon, you know, just do all these things and then you leave and you're never given the engine, which is Christ and the Holy Spirit. But I think we can be so averse to talking about morality and ethics as Christians that we forget that there is a Christian ethic to live by. And we find it in God's word. The Christian ethic is to abstain from sexual immorality and every Christian is called to that standard. Which Jesus taught, which all the scriptures teach. As you know what another part of the scripture says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were not your own. So just as the Thessalonian Christians needed reminding, so do we. So do we. We may, we may think, okay, yeah, yeah, I've heard of the, the standards that, that the Christians hold to or that the Christians are supposed to hold to. You know, we're not supposed to have sex before marriage. You know, that's pretty much the common one that everyone knows if you're a Christian, that's one of the teachings. Uh, save yourself until marriage. But the reality is, how far do we fall short to examine the rest of our lives in every area I don't know if it's because we're we're ashamed to look at the rest of our lives or because we feel powerless I'm not sure but I think it's pretty evident in the visible church at least in the west that sexual immorality is pretty rampant. It's pretty rampant in the church today. Of course, we expect the world to act this way, right? You turn on the TV and there's some stuff going on on a TV show or a movie. And it seems to be getting worse because now we don't even think about some things as far as, you know, television where now it commonly shows scenes that should not be shown. And a fun fact is, I didn't realize this, but the first... The first couple that was shown in bed together on television was the Flintstones. <laughs> and nothing crazy went on, but it was, now it's like that's, that's just a, a common thing. We don't even think about it. It's pretty rampant. Like I said, we expect the world to act this way, but Christians, what's the standard for the Christian? Abstain. Abstain. Yet some of us in the church just brush it off or embrace it actually. Say it's no big deal. And I said the immorality we live in is evident in many of the things we watch, the, the things we say or joke about and the things we post on social media or even where. 
Or maybe we can do a good job publicly of hiding our sexual immorality. But what do we do in private? What do we do in private? As Paul says elsewhere, the Christian is to flee from sexual immorality, not to make excuses for it. We are to wage war against it. And more on this, the the second thing Paul says in the list, he says, to know how to control your own body. To know how to control your own body. In verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. To control your body. Paul says, abstain from sexual immorality. How? Control your body. Know the temptations and sins that you are prone to and war against them. Commit them to prayer. Pray. Bring them to the light of accountability. And remember your great weakness and the deceitfulness of your own heart. And remember where your strength is found. Christ, this is not a journey that we take up on our own. All throughout Scripture, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So one really good way to abstain from sexual immorality is imitate a godly brother or sister in Christ and follow them as they follow Christ. And maybe, maybe there's not someone in your life that you can look up to. I hope there is here at, at Mercy Hill. But you're thinking, well, there's really no one in, in my personal life I can really imitate. There are plenty of books you can pick up of godly men and women who have walked their Christian walk. And so we can learn from their examples. There's a good book by J.C. Ryle called Thoughts for Young Men. It's a great book even for women if you'd like to read it. It's very small, but, and the chapters are very short, but he deals a lot in that book with sexual immorality. It's worth picking up if you don't have a copy. Thoughts for young men. In verse 4, another way this verse could actually be translated is how to possess his own vessel. Instead of saying how to control his own body, it's how to possess his own vessel, which in the Greek literally means how to take a wife for himself. So what is Paul saying? Basically reminding the Christian, that sex is to be, reserved, to be reserved for heterosexual marriage alone. This is the sexual ethic of the Christian. Outside of marriage, out of God's will. Homosexuality, out of God's will. Direct violation of God's will. The only act is to be in marriage between a man and a woman alone. Bodies are to be controlled in holiness and in honor. What's the next thing Paul says? We are not to act as the Gentiles do. Verse 5. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So to not control our bodies means we are giving in to the passions and lust of the flesh just like the pagans do just like the unbelievers who do not know God. When we do not abstain from sexual immorality, we act just like those who refuse to honor God. Yet, we know God as Christians, and we still choose to give our bodies and minds up to what God hates. There is no greater inconsistency than for the Christian to act this way. Let me say that again. There is absolutely no greater inconsistency than for the Christian to act this way. We act just like the world when we refuse to abstain from sexual immorality. And let me back up a little bit. When Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, he could have said so much more. He could have been, okay, um, it's to read your Bible. It's to pray. It's to gather with the church. It's to sing with the church. It's to have discipleship. And those are all part of your sanctification. But what did he say? He said, 
your sanctification, abstain from sexual immorality because it is critical we understand this. If we read the Old Testament, when Israel abandoned God, what are the examples or the analogies that God used? He said Israel is whoring after other gods. And that is harsh language. That is harsh language, but it's found within Scripture because it's so important to understand this. So when we give our bodies away in a way that God has not said to do, we are saying to God, we rebel against you. Our bodies are not our own, but belong to the one who paid for them with his blood. So when the Christian reflects the world, we mock God. So to be sanctified means to be set apart. Sanctified, Sanctified means to be set apart. So our sanctification is a process that weans us from the world, not causing us to look more like it, church. We are not supposed to look like the world. How often do we think that if we look like the world, we would attract the world? That is satanic. That is not the will of God. We are set apart as Christians, as the sheep in the pasture of God. including our sexual ethic. And what's the fourth thing Paul says? Verses six through seven. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness, but in holiness. Do not wrong your brother or your sister in this matter. We are to especially abstain from transgressing our fellow Christian and sexual immorality. And what a great lie it is that sexual immorality is harmless, especially to your fellow Christians. And you guys are reasonable people, so I don't have to explain everything but it's rather simple to see how it is harmful where a man and a woman, a spouse commits adultery. What does that do to the, to the relationship when the man or woman goes off and gives their body to, to another person? Or maybe it's not even adultery. Maybe it's the husband is addicted to looking at images on the internet or maybe watching things you shouldn't be watching in movies. How that causes issues in the relationship and in our sanctification? Or what about a man or woman who gives themselves away before marriage and, the, and the, the images that are stuck in your mind or the emotional things you have to work through when you get married? And what about the more private sins of immorality when we're addicted to things on a computer screen how does that make you an effective Christian? When behind closed doors, you're stuck in sin and you desire to walk and be a faithful Christian and yet we know that we're so guilty that we don't take a bold stand, how is that being a healthy member of the church or of your family or of your community in a Christ-like way? But it doesn't just stop there. What does Paul say? Paul says, God will avenge these things. God will avenge these things. He's the real avenger, not this Marvel stuff. (laughs) He will avenge these things. Do we really think that he's going to idly stand by when we wrong our brothers and sisters, especially in sexual immorality? We read scripture like this and sometimes think, eh, I've been doing this for X amount of months or years and nothing's happened to me yet. No. The question is, are you going to believe the text of Scripture or your own experience? And that could be in a sermon in itself. 
God will avenge these things, whether now or when he returns. All those who have been wronged will be avenged. Verse 7, Paul reminds the Christian, God has called us not for impurity, but holiness. Not impurity, Christian, but in holiness. And here's the charge that should sober us all if we're not quite there yet. Verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Anyone who wants to brush this off doesn't just simply disregard man, but God himself. And do we not see this? We see this in the world. That's a given. Just the simple ethics that, that, that they live show that they rebel and hate God. And that is nothing new ever since the garden. But Christians, how often do we brush off the commands of God? Maybe because we didn't know them. Maybe because we heard them, just didn't believe them. Or maybe we twist them. And it's pretty evident to see that in the church today. On social media, um, I don't know how many times I see, but more and more um, churches start to affirm the LGBTQ plus thing. Um, and not just saying, ah, we're not going to have a stance on it. It's embracing it. In fact, many of the clergy become uh, lesbian women. And they're just flaunting this. Because they somehow think Scripture changed? We brush off God. And the reality is, Christians, is that every time we sin, we choose to love sin over loving God. Not even in just in sexual immorality ways, sexually immoral ways. All of our sin, in that moment we chose to love the world over God. Do not disregard the word. Do not casually stand by. When you hear scripture, when you read scripture, take this as the word of God. Believe it. The last part of this verse in verse 8, it says, God has given what to the Christian, or rather who to the Christian? His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit. In other parts of the scripture, the Holy Spirit is just referred to as Spirit, capital S. But here, Holy Spirit. In the Greek, the word holy is emphasized. He gave the Holy Spirit to his children, to you, to me. And those who have the Holy Spirit will be sanctified. They will be sanctified. As Alistair Begg said, God does not justify those whom he does not sanctify. God does not justify those whom he does not sanctify. Another way to put that is, if you are justified, you will be sanctified. There is no other option. You are justified, you will be sanctified. And praise God for that. He will do a work within you. What he started, he will bring to completion. Another way to put it also is, you will never be sinless, but you will sin less. Our sanctification is progressive. It's a lifelong battle. But there will be maturing if you are walking according to the will of God found in his word. Real quickly, circling back to verse one, Paul talks about how the Thessalonians were to strive to walk as they were already doing, to walk as they ought to walk. How? How can they do this? How? Because they have the Holy Spirit. Because they have the Holy Spirit. So our obedience is not legalism. It is if you're trying to gain salvation. It is if you're trying to gain righteousness or something from God, love from God. 
That's a form of legalism. Our obedience is how God sanctifies us and how we show our love back to God. That's our obedience. And addressing sexual immorality. If all you hear this morning is, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. The Christian is powerless without the Holy Spirit. The Christian has the Holy Spirit, and that is where our strength is found. And our motivation is because Christ died for that sin upon the cross. He's washed us with his blood. And I'll address this in a little bit as we go on. But the next part, if we look at verse 9, let's look at verses 9 through 12. So verses 1 through 8 would have been the negative commands. The last couple of verses here are the positive commands for sanctification. So the first part, don't do these things. Resist these things for your sanctification. Here is, do these things for your sanctification. So let's read this, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. To be dependent upon no one. So Paul writes to the Thessalonians to tell them that they are indeed excelling in brotherly love, saying you are loving the brothers well. I commend you. You're doing this so well that others know about it. And he says that the Holy Spirit himself has been teaching them. God has taught them. He says, I have no need to write to you because God is teaching you. Meaning that the verbal and the written word of God is being applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way we're going to get something is by the Holy Spirit applying it to our hearts. We can't force that into our own hearts. That is the work of the Spirit, softening our hearts, teaching us. We are not left alone. Yet Paul tells them, hey, you guys, you're doing such a really good job loving your, your brothers in Christ, your brothers and sisters, your fellow Christians. However, do it more and more. Continue to excel even more. So the job of loving your neighbor and your enemies never ends. Our sanctification is also brought about through loving others, as God says to love. There's no such thing or there shouldn't be such a thing in Christianity as spiritual complacency. You've never arrived. You've never done enough obedience. Because our whole life is to show that to God and to our brothers. That's the Christian walk. That could be a sermon in itself, which I will not do this morning as well. But let's look really quick at how Paul reminds the Thessalonians how to love. There's so many things in Scripture about how the Christian is to love. But here specifically are a couple things. Verses 11 and 12. And to aspire to, to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. So the three things there Live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. The first two could be phrased this way. Live peaceably with others. Live peaceably with others instead of meddling in others' affairs. And you're reasonable people. I don't think I need to explain that. The difference between meddling in someone's affairs and helping them. How often do we get involved in other people's lives so we can gossip about it or so we can know and we can chit-chat or because we simply stick our noses where they don't belong? 
because we simply want to know what's going on. Live quietly by minding your own affairs. Now, this isn't ignoring your brothers in Christ, as in Galatians we talked about how we are a brother's keeper. So it's not saying ignore that. If someone is in sin or there's something going on where they, they need help, Paul isn't saying, eh, just mind your own affairs, let everything go. Help them, of course. But we shouldn't be sticking our noses where they don't belong for the wrong reasons. The last exhortation, Paul says, is to work with your hands. I'm not the best handyman at home. If something breaks, if I try to fix it, what could have been fixed will now become not able to be fixed ever if I touch it. So when Paul says work with your hands, I'm like, Lord, what are you talking about? I could try to learn. You know, fire up YouTube and see all the how-to videos just so I can get depressed and remind myself how I can't. There's other guy, you know, Joe's a handyman. He does all this stuff and I don't know how he does it. It must be the Holy Spirit. What does Paul mean when he says work with your hands? Simply this, simply this. If you're able, make a living for yourself so you're not a burden. There was no such thing as a cubicle computer job back in Paul's day everyone either worked with their hands or they had some vocation where it was probably going to be working with your hands. Now, the Greeks actually looked down upon working with your hands. They thought that was was beneath them. So what does Paul say? Work with your hands. Make a living for yourself if you're able to. Providentially, we know sometimes things happen. Accidents happen. And we're not talking about two-year-olds. Hey, work work with your hands, buddy. Come on. Those who are able to. But why? What's the reason, he says? So that you're not a burden. You're not a burden. So love others by living peaceably when they are able and not being, unnecessary, not being an unnecessary burden due to laziness or distraction. Now, some quick background on, the, on this is that um, the section in chapter four we didn't read was dealing with the return of Christ. And so many of the Christians were so caught up in the return of Christ, thinking he could come anytime. So they just stopped working completely. And so they were dependent upon their wealthy Christian brothers and sisters to, to support them. Paul is saying, no, no, no. Work with your hands. Make a living. The Lord is going to come back, but that shouldn't stop you from being faithful in what he has given you to do. Now, I think the American church maybe has flipped itself where we almost totally forget that the Lord is coming back. So we live as if he's never coming back. So maybe we could use a little bit of a dose of the Thessalonians waiting for the return of the Lord. That he may return even today. There was a quote that I liked. It says this, There can be no better preparation for the coming of Christ than to be faithful in your ordinary duties. Christ is coming back. What can you do to prepare for that? Go to work tomorrow. Work with your hands. Make a living. Be faithful in what God has given you. Nate, you can come up. So as I say all this, as we've unfolded this, there's a couple things I would like for us to think about as a church. The will of God. So many things in scripture that we can talk about with the will of God. Here specifically in this text, God has said to abstain from sexual immorality. Another way to put it is live for purity, for holiness and love your brother. Something we must understand is that moral reform in our lives will get us nowhere if there is no spiritual renewal. We can't earn a thing from Christ, from God. Our abstaining from sexual immorality is only possible because of the Holy Spirit. Because God says, I have chosen you. You are my child. 
and I am going to work within you. How am I going to do this? Trust me, but strive. Kill the flesh. Abstain from what is evil, from immorality. So this morning, I do want to call us to evaluate, to examine our lives. Where can we repent? Where can we strive more? Where have we grown complacent? What standard are we looking to? Our own, our brother's, or God's word? And remember that Christ is sufficient to help. He has washed away all of our sins, which is why we're able now to walk in obedience. Because we're not trying to earn anything from him. He says, obey me, trust me. Because obedience is how you show your love to me. And I will bless that. I will bless that by sanctifying you. Making you to love more of the things of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have clearly revealed your will within Scripture. And one area specifically is to abstain from sexual immorality. Lord, may we be a pure people that desires not to give our bodies away to the world and to the flesh, but to be faithful. Husbands and wives be faithful to each other. Singles to be pure. Not just for the sake of doing that, Lord, but to show our love to you because this is how you've chosen to work our sanctification. Please help us by the power of your Holy Spirit. You continue to sanctify us as your people. We need you, Lord. Continue to fill us and strengthen us so we can turn from evil and to love our brother, to love our brothers in Christ and our sisters. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We are not powerless. Just like the hymn we sang, yet not I, but Christ in me. That's the only way. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.